Okay, so we've been looking at the Psalms. We've been looking at them for a few weeks now. We kind of had a bit of an introduction and then we had a bit of an interlude and then we looked at the Psalms of Orientation. And when we did that last week, we had six key theological conclusions that we looked at from the scholar-theologian Walter Brueggemann. I'll quickly run through those to give you a recap. He said, the Psalms of Orientation. So the Psalms of Orientation, these are the kind of more um, pleasant psalms, the psalms that reflect uh, the gratitude and, uh, and the worshipness uh, and all of the good stuff. Uh, they're the easy psalms. And in Walter Brueggemann's opinion, they are the most kind of boring, I guess, the, and the most linguistically simple. Uh, the, the psalms of lament and disorientation that we're going to look at today, apparently, uh, in, in his excellent Hebrew opinion, he says that they are far more linguistically exciting. All right, so here's uh, six theological points, though, uh, from last week. The Psalms of Orientation celebrate the life-giving capacity of God's creation. That's one. The Psalms of Orientation not only celebrate the order of the world, but also serve to maintain it. That is, that the corporate expression of these Psalms both remind us and create for us a life with God as the foundation. Number three, the Psalms of Orientation express a conviction that human actions have moral consequences. They have moral significance. They convey the idea that the world is morally coherent and actions have corresponding consequences. And then there are three other things he said that when we only teach the Psalms of Orientation, when we only speak them, when we only memorize and recite them, and we do that at the exclusion of all of the other Psalms, we can fall into, a, I guess, a misuse almost of the Psalms. So his other three points were kind of, if we do things badly, these things could happen. The Psalms of Orientation can function as a form of social control, leveraging people to do what is desired. They contribute to ethical formation and reinforce societal norms and expectations which, you know, like is not terrible. We do that with our kids. We want them to be formed morally. So we teach them that the righteous get blessed and the wicked get punished. Like, so there is something of that. But we could also misuse these Psalms as a way to try and control and manipulate people. So number five, Psalms of orientation can induce feelings of guilt. As they suggest that if something goes wrong in a reliable world, it must be due to personal failure. So if we are shaped by that moral view and we think, oh, yes, the, the, um, you know, always the, the good get good things and the bad get bad things, then if something happens to us, we could then carry this idea that we must have caused it. When we have sickness or ailment or trauma or tragedy or uh, calamity, we would say, I must be in sin. It must be my fault. And when we see the Psalms uh, exclusively as Psalms of orientation, that is a misuse that we can fall into. And finally, uh, the Psalms of Orientation can promote denial by encouraging individuals to maintain the illusion that everything is working even when it is not. If we always have praise and gratitude, even when things are completely awful, then we kind of can live a little bit in denial. So Brueggemann highlights the importance of these Psalms. He spent literally longer than I have been alive writing and researching and teaching on the Psalms. But he also identifies the ways in which the Psalms of Orientation can fall short. When our lives are not happy uh, and prosperous, when they're not orientated in a way which is, uh, I guess, good, 
We can be uh, grateful, though, that there are other Psalms that can more honestly reflect our spiritual and emotional challenges. I have a, a quote here from Walter Brueggemann. It says, It is a curious fact that the church has, by and large, continued to sing songs of orientation in a world increasingly experienced as disorientated. That may be laudatory. It could be that such relentlessness is an act of bold defiance in which these psalms of order and reliability are flung in the face of the disorder. It is possible that the church uses these psalms of orientation in this way, but at best this is only partly true. It is my judgment that the, uh, this action of the church is less an evangelical defiance guided by faith and much more a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. So about one third of the Psalms are what we would call lament or protest or complaint. And by my reckoning, that means that our worship and our prayer should have a lot more lament and protest and complaint than it does. The world honestly does not need that many more nice, careful, blunt platitudes. What we need is some authentic truth speaking uh, in our dialogue with God and with one another. So again, Walter Brueggemann says, the Psalter knows that life is dislocated. No cover-up is necessary. The Psalter is a collection over a long period of time of the eloquent, passionate songs and prayers of people who are at the desperate edge of their lives. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you are struggling, then be real about that struggle. Don't feel that you need to have a masked, hidden, secret, private, quiet struggle. By all means, share your struggle with us. Uh, and, and also, don't feel that you need to hide your struggle, your lament, your complaint, your hurt, your grief, your frustration from God. When we hide these things from one another and from God, it develops a culture of shame. Uh, and, and that... Like there's something wrong with us because we are going through a time of trial. But that's never been helpful uh, in a relationship with God. It's never been beautiful and it's never been um, something that the uh, Jewish tradition uh, has embraced. We need to embrace the mess. So as I have read through uh, Brueggemann's work on the Psalms of Disorientation, I haven't found a tidy list of six things, but I have identified... Uh, for myself, four things that I think are reoccurring themes that I'd like to share with you today. Uh, so I'll run through them really quick, and then I'll, I'll share with about each of them. The first is this. Psalms of disorientation example for us a dialogue with God. Secondly, Psalms of disorientation force us to face reality. Psalms of disorientation help us to gravel, grapple with our disillusionment and push through to a place of healing, transformation, and renewal. And finally, Psalms of orient, uh, disorientation are a call to action, challenging us as individuals and communities to work for justice and righteousness in the world. So I've got a, a few quotes here that kind of 
go with those ones. So the first one here for Psalms of Disorientation being an example of a, a dialogue with God. Uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, says that Psalms of Disorientation are bold because they insist all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for discourse with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. Everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart. The example for us, a dialogue. The Psalms are a dialogical, is the, the word Brueggemann likes to use, or dialectic. They are about us talking to God and uh, there are a few cases where God speaks back in the Psalms, but uh, there are lots of cases, and we'll see this in the example Psalm I have at the end, where the psalmist will pour out their kind of uh, complaints, their plea, and then something somewhere in the middle changes. It's like they've gone away, God has responded, and then they come back and there is a total change in the tone in that Psalm. It's like the prayer was written over a long season and then we just get to see the, um, the short version of that period of time. It's a dialogue with God. Everything is safe and appropriate in that dialogue, no matter how extreme we think it is. There are, in, in the midst of the lament psalms, we find what are called imprecatory psalms, which means a psalm of cursing. There are psalms that, that, that say, my enemies are coming to get me and I want you to get them first. My enemies are trying to hurt me. I want you to hurt them. These are psalms of malice and meanness because they are an honest dialogue. I know that in our very um, suburban Christian safe lives, we, we don't really express that malice and rage, but I know that there are moments inside all of our lives in traffic <laughs> when we think it wouldn't upset me if that person got caught right now by the police turning where they're not meant to turn, cutting in front of me. It wouldn't upset me right now if they just hit the gutter and blew a tire. It wouldn't, I don't, want them, I don't want them to get really hurt, but just mess them up a little bit would make me feel good. And so we, in that, in that place where we have those feelings, it is appropriate to bring that to God. We don't have to say, well, I'm going to put on my Sunday best clothes and my Sunday best uh, hat and my Sunday best attitude and my Sunday best uh, tone in my prayers to God. I'm going to only read the prayers of St. Boniface so that they sound nice and pretty and uh, historically uh, appropriate because I don't want to embarrass myself before the throne of God. And instead, we should be absolutely happy to embarrass ourselves, absolutely happy to make ourselves look terrible. We'll get to more of that in a sec. The Psalms of disorientation force us to face reality. Again, Brueggemann says, the Psalms of disorientation are an act of bold faith because they insist that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretended way. It is no wonder that the church has intuitively avoided these Psalms. They lead us into a dangerous acknowledgement of how life really is. They lead us into the presence of God where everything is not polite and civil. They cause us to think unthinkable thoughts and utter unutterable words. Perhaps worst, they lead us away from the comfortable religious claims of modernity in which everything is managed and controlled. In our modern experience, but probably also in every successful and affluent culture, it is believed that enough power and knowledge can tame the terror and eliminate the darkness. 
I'm not sure when that was written. In my notes, it says it's from his book, A Message of the Psalms from 2007, but that could be a reprint. Uh, talking about modernity in that way. Everything is controlled and orderly. We can fix all our own problems. We can solve all of the issues of the world. That's the promise of modernism. And in that same promise, it says we need to uh, park all of those angry feelings and, uh, of, and, and the reality of our lives to the side because we can fix it ourselves. The Psalms of Disorientation, example for us, a dialogue with God. And they, face, they force us to face reality. The third point that I have for you is that Psalms of Disorientation help us to grapple with our disillusionment and push through to a place of healing, transformation, and renewal. I think it's safe to say we are not good at lament. For many of us, our experience of Christian faith is rarely, for many of us, this is true, it's rarely resilient enough to survive significant suffering or sickness or disappointment or struggle or setback. I know I know more than I'd like to, but I know many Christians who have been through challenges and put on a brave face while privately experiencing the erosion of their hope and their joy and their faith. The inability of Christians to lament and to question and to grieve has made many atheists. Because it's easier to watch Netflix than it is to process our grief and our anger our disappointment and our disillusionment and our bafflement that these things happen, that good things don't always happen to good people, that bad things indeed happen to the righteous and to the good and to the faithful and to the kind. And because we can't figure it out, instead of petitioning God about that, instead of working through that, it's easier to just shelve it entirely. Brian Zahn says, To deny our sorrow doesn't make us happy, it makes us numb. We make it numb with uh, the things that we pour our lives into, the addictions of our lives, the television and the Instagram and the Facebook. Notwithstanding the, the alcoholism or the drugs or the whatever other problem, the pornography or the just addiction to uh, full stop, whatever that issue is, it's easier to numb ourselves than it is to deal with our sorrow. Songs of lament help us to express our sorrow so that we can begin to heal. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who express the inside damage and hurt and disappointment and, and brokenness of their heart because it's then that they can be comforted in their relationships, in their families, in their community, in, their, in the kingdom of God. It's the, the, those who express their deep mourning. And I suspect in the time to come, those who have mourned quietly and privately also, they will be comforted. And this is why those imprecatory psalms take it to a whole nother level. Because sometimes we just want to rage and we want to curse and that's a sentiment that is best expressed to God. Because sometimes we need to say things in God's presence that we know He's not going to bless. Because we just need to be honest. 
We don't have to be on our best behavior in front of God because he's not nearly as interested in decency and decorum as he is interested in honesty. So one of the, the functions of, the, of those cursing imprecatory psalms uh, and, and the laments and, 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 the, and the complaints is that they put words to our fury and disillusionment. These kinds of psalms aren't about convincing God to do something awful to our enemies. They are actually about healing ourselves of our rage and our confusion so that we don't feel compelled to act in unrighteous ways. When I pour out my rage to God... That is a way safer place to pour it out than on the person who I'm enraged at or on the people who are around me. I don't want to pour out my rage at something over here on, on my family and my children. We offer our wrath and our desire for vengeance over to God so that we can be healed of its poison. The Psalms of disorientation help us to grapple with our disillusionment and our anger and help us to push through to a place of healing and transformation and renewal. And the Psalms of disorientation, this is my fourth point, are a call to action, challenging us as individuals and communities to work for justice and righteousness in the world. Because you might say, and rightly, these psalms don't really connect with what's going on in my life. Things are actually pretty good. We're pretty healthy and well, and, you know, we're pretty comfortable. I don't like the interest rate rises, but, you know, I can pay my mortgage. We've got jobs. We are managing. My relationships are doing okay. I don't actually... The worst thing in my life to curse about is a guy in traffic. I've got it going pretty well at the moment, so I don't really identify with these psalms, but we pray through these psalms anyway because maybe, just maybe, it's not because we need to identify with them. It's because we need to understand that there are people who do identify with them and we need to intercede for them. We need to pray with them. The psalms of uh, lament and disorientation Give us an opportunity to put ourselves into somebody else's shoes. I think one of the reasons also that when we feel disconnected from these Psalms, because when you read some of them, they're pretty, pretty wild. Some of these Psalms are written by people with significant PTSD and trauma because their city has been destroyed, their temple, the place where they meet God has been um, d d destroyed and then they've been treated awfully and their family has been treated awfully and they've been exiled and many of them have been killed and then they've been taunted by their enemies and they have no hope for a future at this time. And they have these Psalms that come out of this trauma that are really, really violent and aggressive. And I just don't have any context to identify with that. But also, I think somewhere in my heart, and I think in your hearts, we probably realize the reality is, in the context of the exile by the Babylonians and the, and, and the Israelites having to leave, we are actually more like the Babylonians than the Israelites. And that's hard. It's hard to read the, the, the pleas and the plight of those people. It's hard to watch the news right now at certain places in the world. You look at the devastation that is going on there. It's hard because somewhere in our hearts, we know 
that we are much more allied with the sides dropping the bombs than the sides bringing aid. And even though we want to frame ourselves as the hero and reluctantly we frame ourselves as the villain, uh, sorry, the victim, the reality is, is that we are the villain sometimes. So it is hard when we have a closer affinity with the oppressors than with the oppressed to pray those prayers in an earnest and honest way. But they deserve a place in our prayers. Reading those Psalms and saying, I know that there are people in this situation with these real feelings right now, not just a thousand or two thousand or three thousand or four thousand years ago, right now, people who are experiencing the same grief and injustice today. These prayers deserve a place in our prayer lives because they are a window into the raw and chaotic and despairing voice within humanity that emerges during times of crisis and confusion. The Psalms of disorientation, especially when we're so detached and can't understand, give us language. They give us a script so that we can cry out with rage and grief. They give us permission to authentically come to God on behalf of those who are oppressed. These Psalms have the power to draw us into the experience and story, the narrative that other people are living those who are facing adversity and allow us to come alongside them in solidarity, to, to come alongside them in their despair and, their, and the injustices that they face. So Brueggemann identifies uh, he, uh, as kind of the, the model of these psalms and not all of the lament or imprecatory or complaint psalms follow the exact same model, but the key elements are like this. They start with a plea. There is an address to God to fix the situation. And this is often intimate and personal. It's not just, hey, God, you jerk, fix it. It's my God, my God. You were my God before, you were my God now. I called on you before, I'm calling on you now. There is an intimacy in that plea. So it starts there in the same way that when my kids are wanting to play on the screen or something and they come to you and they're like, oh, dad, they're all sweet. They're all intimate. That's how a lot of these pleas start. So they address God, oh God, my God. And then they bring the complaint, which often involves quite a significant amount of hyperbole, let's be honest. And often um, they even go as far as blaming God, which also, now that I think about it, often follows the model of my children as well. Um, Somehow the thing they need help with is my fault. And then there is a petition, which is often framed as an imperative. So the petition there is uh, is not just, um, can you help me? The petition there is, you must help me. You are my God, uh, and I have a right for you to help me. And then they list the motivations for this help that they are demanding at this point. They've gone past the intimate um, uh, plea, and now they are listing off the reasons. You need to help me now. I'm going to bargain. I'm going to bribe. I'm even going to try and manipulate uh, and bully you into doing what you were meant to do because, frankly, I'm innocent uh, or, or I'm very repentant. And you were good before God. You were good to the generations before us. You were good to Abraham and Isaac and you were good to even Moses. You were good. So you were good before. So now because of that precedent, you need to be good now. Or you would miss my praise. 
If you don't fix my problem, I won't be able to thank you and praise you. And that would be your loss, God. So you definitely need to fix my problem so I can keep praising you. Uh, Actually, if you don't intervene, everyone, all the other gods are going to laugh at you. All my enemies are going to think that you're the weakest of, of all of the gods. You should fix my problem because it will be an embarrassment to you if you don't fix my problem. You see, the, the, the process, there is like um, a process here where the petitioner, they start all sweet and then they get more angry and then they get demanding. It's a pretty straightforward formula. And then finally they get to, at times, the, Im, uh, imprecation, uh, the imprecation, which is the unguarded, an honest expression of rage and injustice. You must fix this, God, because it is wrong. And don't just fix it. I want justice. And not the justice that Jesus will bring that makes wrong things right. I want the justice that punishes the wrong things. Punish my enemies. And then there's a break. Not always a salah in the psalm, but there's a break. Because the psalm was probably not written in one go, or the psalm was written in a way where they reflected upon a past event. Because there's something that happens in the midst of most of these psalms of lament, these psalms of complaint, these psalms of anger and rage. So we go from the plea side to the praise side. And in that, we have three parts. The assurance of being heard. So whereas in the first part, there is a sense that The reason this problem exists, God, is because you were absent. It's your fault this happened to me. Now we see the the, the prayer, um, a person coming to God with their psalm to say, you are no longer absent. I know that Yahweh is here. And then uh, we have what's called the, the section for payment of vows, which is before, if I've said, I promise to be a very good person, I promise to... um, to fill out the pledge form this week. I promise to um, do the washing up. I promise to uh, get up early and I promise to, now comes the delivery of that. Yahweh is no longer absent but present. Yahweh has resolved the issue. So now I am going to act on the promises that I have made. And then finally, we have the what we call the doxology and praise, which is simply to acknowledge God for his generosity and his faithfulness. So we have a plea And then we have to praise. All right, that was a lot of information. The people who just nodded at me, shame on you. Uh, That was a lot of information. Let's just look at a very short psalm now and run through that. So this is a personal psalm of lament in Psalm 13. Um, At some point in the next little while, we'll look at some corporate stuff. Uh, We'll look at some of the more uh, spicy psalms, I like to call them. But... um, Let's have a quick look at Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? There are are six verses. They're just the first two. It opens with four rhetorical questions which in the English looks like five questions. Where are you? Why are you absent? If you were here, I wouldn't be in this situation. Clearly, this is your fault, O Yahweh, absent of God. It's the sentiment that's going on there. It's very consistent with our theme of disorientation. The idea that God isn't there. 
When we feel like everything's not going well in my sickness, God's clearly not there. In my, my stress or my difficulty, where is God? There is a terseness to this opening. They mention God. How long, Lord? But it's not a warm thing. It is very much a verbal onslaught. Because you aren't here, so he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Because you aren't here, all I have is the same thoughts in my own head. And I don't know about you, when things aren't well, who wants to be stuck with the thoughts in their own head? They're not helping me. All I have is my own thoughts in my own head. And all I have is my own sorrow in my own heart. Because you have failed to be present in my life, my enemies triumph over me. Thanks a lot, Yahweh. This is your fault. I don't know how often you, uh, and clearly it wouldn't be you, but the, someone else you're related to or connected to, their problems are never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. And that's because this is a pretty common feeling, which is why it's addressed to God. I feel like it's someone else's fault that I'm in this situation, maybe even yours. Verse 3 says, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Here we see the petitions, the motivations, that intimacy that I was talking about. Look on me, my Lord. Answer me. Give light to my eyes. All of a sudden, we're talking about our past and current relationship with God. It's much more tender now that I really want God's help. And then between the end of this verse and the beginning of the next verse, something has clearly shifted. We don't know how much time has passed, but something has shifted. The disorientation is resolved. And then we have verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. You see, through the movement of this psalm, Yahweh shifts from being sulkily summoned and accused to being tenderly petitioned and then praised. You see, there is something of the venom or the anger or the disappointment that is, that is drawn out through the prayer and then in God meeting the need and then in the worshipfulness at the end and the gratitude. So not all the psalms of lament are just like full, angry and unresolved. A few of them are a bit like that. But generally speaking, the psalms of lament are a movement from, from plea to praise, a movement from grief to comfort, a movement from fear to trust. And in that, we see our own human condition where we, and, and maybe the disorientation in our lives, you know, they're not always simple things. It's not always just, I had a bad morning and it got better in the afternoon. Sometimes the disorientation is years long. We call them a dark night of the soul. Sometimes they're years long because there is literally an invading army coming in and kicking us out of our homes. They're years long because of chronic illness or uh, a death or a grief that you've never moved on from. The disorientation is not always something that is quick. But the promise of the Psalms for us is, is that there can be a, an outcome at the end of disorientation where we have reorientation. And that's the third category that we'll be looking at 
in the Psalms uh, next week, um, the idea of reorientation. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present and that you hear our cries and you know our heart and you are ready to hear whatever we have to say, however honest and raw that is, and that you want to provide uh, comfort and that you mourn with us that you are not foreign to sorrows yourself and that we can trust you and that one day you will bring justice that makes all wrong things right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.